If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. How far back does the story of black people in Britain stretch? Who was Cheddar Man? And what evidence do we have of black people in the medieval era? In today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, the historian Hannah Cusworth is answering your top questions about black British history in conversation with Charlotte Hodgman. As always with our Everything You Wanted to Know series, the questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted via social media. So Hannah, thanks for thanks for joining us today. I think just to start off with, perhaps we could just outline, we're going to be talking about black British history today. What do we mean by that in this kind of context? Yeah, it's an important question to, to start with, because it's a, it's a really, really, really broad topic, or at least my understanding of it is, it's, it's maybe sort of two, maybe even more thousand years worth of, of history, and covers obviously Britain, but if we're thinking about sort of what we mean by by black, and that is a term that has changed over time, and I think it's important to recognise that. But when when I'm talking about black British history and and about and about the kind of word black, I'm thinking about people who are from Africa and also what we call the African diaspora. And so what we mean by that is people who kind of have their like family heritage in back in in Africa. So I consider myself as being a member of the African diaspora. My my family on my dad's side from Antigua which is an island in the Caribbean and originally I'm kind of always assumed that they were from somewhere in West Africa but so you have people from the African diaspora uh, in in Europe in the Americas the Caribbean and of course all over the world so it's those people who have that heritage in Africa and then their history in in Britain but also in David Olashoga people probably familiar with the historian David Olashoga has been I think really influential in thinking about black British history History is also what happened in those areas of the world that Britain was sort of involved with because of its empire. So we're also talking about, so kind of, I feel like Caribbean history, when we're thinking about the islands that Britain colonised, that's, to me, that's Black British history. That kind of, the history that was that was happening in the Caribbean or in West Africa as well. And we know that Britain has had a really long history of involvement in West Africa, going back before the slave trade, but particularly when we start to get into the sort of 17th, 18th centuries and and beyond and for me that's it's important that we also think about that as black british history okay no thank you that makes it nice and clear before we start i've had lots of good questions from listeners on various social media and we're also going to be looking at popular google searches so it might be a good thing to perhaps just to start with some perhaps some common google questions um just to kind of kick yeah, us sure. off so a, po- a popular question is when did black people first arrive in britain when do we first have evidence of people yeah i mean that is that is a <laughs> actually a surprisingly hard question to answer and there is a really kind of well-known black british history book called staying power which is which was written in the, in the 80s and it kind of opens by talking about how you know there have been black people in britain living in britain since before the english arrived and and what the the author peter fryer sort of means by that is that we have 
examples of, of black people living in Britain from the Roman times. And then when we're thinking about the, the, the English, we're thinking more about people who uh, arrived in, in Britain um, in the kind of Isles after the Romans left. So there's, I think he's kind of making this point that black British history is very, is very long and almost goes, you could potentially argue that there were, there were black people living in Britain thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago because um, some of people, some of the listeners might have heard about Cheddar Man and they, so Cheddar Man, for people who don't know, um, is the name of a skeleton that was found in Cheddar Gorge in the sort of southwest of England and he's often described as like the oldest Brit or because it's a kind of, it's his complete skeleton that was found I think in the sort of Victorian era. And when scientists um, recently sequenced his DNA using those kind of modern techniques that we have, it looks as though he would have had really quite dark skin, black skin, with blue eyes, which is obviously a combination that we don't tend to see so much these days. And so people have sometimes said that, you know, black British history goes back that, you know, that far, like 10,000 years far. Now, I think that's kind of up, up for debate, but British, black British history and when the kind of first black person came to Britain is quite, yeah, I guess a difficult one to really put your finger on, but definitely goes back much longer than sort of the Windrush, which I think when I was growing up, I often thought that black people kind of only came to Britain after the Second World War. And we just have so many different examples and, and evidence to show that that's very much not the case. Yeah. Okay. And then another probably equally tricky question to answer um, was kind of why did black people come to Britain? sort of like why does anyone move anywhere is it, and i think that that is that question about why black people came to britain it's people interested in a in a better life at times uh, for work for education because they're they're fleeing a situation and i think the why black people came to britain changes over time so if we're thinking about in in the roman era We've got the Roman Empire, and I used to be a, a school teacher, and I used to talk about how the Roman Empire stretched from northern England all the way down to sort of Egypt. And so within that Roman Empire, you have a lot of people from, from North Africa, and those people are moving to Britain, and some are sort of serving in Britain as part of the Roman army. Um, there's a North African uh, Roman emperor who visits Britain, Septimus Severus, and so the the empire uh, was bringing black people and African uh, people to Britain, and I think that in the Roman era that was that was a big reason for for those migrations. Okay, Maria on Instagram wanted to know whether we have accounts of Black Britons in the early medieval period, and I suppose I would perhaps like to add to that is what accounts do we have of of Black people sort of you know going right back you know to the early medieval period? What sources do we have? A thing that comes up in in, in Black British history is that different words are used over different time periods. So often in the medieval era, there are there are descriptions of people that we don't necessarily use um, today in the, in the same way. So Ethiopian is a is a word that's used um, often um, to describe someone, and sometimes that could refer to someone who was who was black as we'd understand it today who had much kind of darker um sort of black skin but sometimes that might refer to someone who's who's just from the continent of, of africa so we do have descriptions of people um 
as as Ethiopians, um, there was one example of a of a guy called Bartholomew who was it was around the 13th century, I think, and we have a, a kind of uh, an account, not like a very very brief account really, um, of him being on the run from 13th century Nottingham, maybe trying to escape the the kind of his his master. And we're not talking necessarily about slavery here in the transatlantic slavery sense, but maybe he was a, a servant. And so we do have little glimpses in the historical record of people who may have been black who who probably were from from the continent of Africa but we also have um, quite a lot of archaeological evidence and growing archaeological evidence when archaeologists do analysis of of people's bones of skeletons and there's been um, a relatively recent one in East Smithfield in London when they've done analysis on people's um, skeletons and, and there are a number of women who were were likely from Africa, including sub-Saharan Africa. And then in Ipswich as well, in the sort of medieval era, there's been analysis done uh, on skeletons there. And then kind of going like right back to the 7th century, when people have often, maybe have often heard of um, of Hadrian, when we're thinking about Christianity and the sort of birth of Christianity in Britain, and, and Hadrian was from North Africa. So we have a number of different glimpses, but we don't have a huge number of written sources or sources written by black people themselves from from the medieval era okay and just kind of going slightly back to the, to the romans again um another instagram question we have was somebody wanting to know more about kind of the north africans who served on hadrian's wall do we have any evidence of them yeah 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 we do and there was a unit um i think the they're often described as like Aurelian Moors, and so most likely from from North Africa, but may have included people with with much much darker skin. And there are about five hundred of those soldiers who were serving in, right up in the northeast, sort of nearish Carlisle, um, in around the third century AD, and. There's a sense that, you know, historians, I think people like um, Mary Beard have have argued that in the Roman era, the kind of conception of race was not it was not the same as it is now. And so while there there would have been discrimination during the Roman era, it wasn't necessarily the discrimination, the kind of race form of kind of racism as we know it today. Um, and that people would have been have, you know, different status would have been important, whether someone was enslaved or free, that like those kind of things, where where someone came from kind of area wise would have been as significant, if probably more significant than someone's skin tone. But yeah, we do have uh, have examples of, of people from, from Africa serving on Hadrian's Wall. Okay, so you briefly mentioned the, the slave trade. What kind of changes in terms of the number of black people in Britain after the slave trade sort of, sort of gets going? You know, what was the black presence in in Britain you know how does it change so I think that an understanding that I had until relatively recently was that the slave trade was very much a sort of an 18th century thing and that's kind of when I understood it to begin but the the kind of trade in enslaved people the what we often describe as the transatlantic slave trade actually has a a longer history and and countries like Portugal and Spain were sort of involved in this trans more like transatlantic slave trade from from West Africa quite quite significantly earlier so we're talking sort of more like late 1400s and so you start to then get a number of people from from West Africa living in Spain and in Portugal particularly and those people sometimes then find their way 
um, the variety of different situations up into England. So listeners might have heard of, of, of Black Tudors and there's been quite a lot of work done by a number of different scholars um, on the kind of black presence in Tudor England, which which really predates when England was really involved in the transatlantic slave trade. So that kind of comes a little bit later. And so you have individuals like John Blank, who was a, a trumpeter in the court of Henry VIII and was paid wages and kind of petitioned for a pay rise and received one from, from Henry VIII. And then there seemed to be a number of other um, black people in in that kind of Tudor court who may have come with Catherine of Aragon. Again, that kind of Spanish, like Iberian, Iberian link. There was a, a black diver who was involved in the salvaging of the Mary Rose and and so there were a variety of different kind of people, black people in Tudor England working in, for example, a silk weaver living in, in Southwark. But the nature, I think, of that presence does change when Britain starts to get much more involved in the transatlantic slave trade, because you start to get much larger numbers of black people coming over to Britain as a result of it. And in the sort of Georgian period, you have quite a significant, we think, black community, probably over 10,000 people living, black people living in London in the sort of Georgian um, era. And that is much larger than we've seen in the Tudor era um, or before. So the numbers definitely increase as Britain's involvement in this transatlantic slave trade grows. And you mentioned earlier that early medieval period that where somebody came from was actually was as important or you know, skin colour wasn't necessarily, didn't sort of factor into how people were, were necessarily treated. When do we sort of see that changing? Does that come in with the slave trade? Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think it would be it would be wrong to say that people didn't didn't notice any people's skin skin color or skin tone and a number of the, the sort of black tudors have surnames that relate to their the color of their skin um so people have said that John Blank is maybe that's a sort of a joke or or some kind of commentary on on like his on his darker skin and and so it, it's it's not that it wasn't um remarked upon and I think people who are like scholars of Shakespeare have also done quite a lot of analysis around around that I think it was more that you didn't have such hard and fast um kind of racial car- uh, categories and I think once we then start to get into to the transatlantic slave trade those ideas about what is appropriate for a, uh, even the kind of category actually of white is something which is sort of forged and really created as a as a kind of real like category during the transatlantic slave trade era and then this idea of kind of what is appropriate for a white person to do versus what is appropriate for a black person to do what a, what a black person is is like just by virtue of them being black i think that's something that we very much see forming and crystallizing during the sort of 18th century and then during the kind of Victorian era we start to get what people often describe as kind of scientific racism like much more kind of this kind of pseudoscience that is much more kind of the familiar form of the racism that we're kind of much more familiar with today in the sort of 21st century. Another question from Instagram was how has the idea that Britain is kind of was primarily a a white society how has that affected the kind of the telling of of Britain's black history um, and the kind of public perception of that? Yeah I think that's I think that is a, a really fascinating question and for me one thing that I was quite surprised about is it's kind of 
that history as a discipline, obviously people have always told stories about the past, but history as a kind of professional discipline in many ways is a kind of Victorian era kind of creation as a kind of professional concept of like history. And I think if you're thinking then about the Victorian era, that's when this kind of scientific racism and this real emphasis on racial purity or um, and like when white supremacy is is a really big feature of societies in Britain, Europe, North America. And I think that there was a real desire at that time to show Britain as being um, having kind of Anglo-Saxon beginnings and that that all kind of feeds in to this presenting Britain as a very white place and as as being um, a place of, 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 of whiteness historically. And I would also then be really interested to to think about how empire and and the fall of the, the kind of the, the breakup of the British Empire, how that perhaps also contributed to a desire to or a kind of stepping away from thinking about Britain almost as a kind of a multi-racial empire and people kind of wanting to like put that to one side and just focus on Britain as being a, a, a white place. And I think that that has probably played into to why black history sometimes has been, has kind of been ignored or kind of swept under the carpet at times. Okay. Another actually very interesting question. I mean, recently we've seen a lot a kind of a, a bit of a shake up in kind of period dramas. So series mm-hmm. like a uh, Netflix series Bridgerton, you know, we seeing we're seeing black characters, you know, in, in period dramas. Are there any kind of elements of, of truth in, in these kind of stories? For Bridgerton, and I'm thinking mostly here about the, the sort of first series, very much so, I I would argue. I think that there have been um there's been research around uh, queen charlotte who in bridgerton is presented very much as a as a as a black woman a kind of light skin but clearly black woman and there has been research done and historians have argued that she did have black ancestry from a kind of portuguese line of of her family and when you see portraits of queen charlotte there some of her features are what we would maybe associate with were kind of mixed like black mixed race people and other historians have have kind of like not necessarily agreed with it but I think there is there is some kind of evidence there I think when we're then thinking about black Georgians there are so many different examples um, of black Georgians uh, right through the social scale actually so some of your listeners will be familiar with Dido Bell who's often described as a kind of a mixed race aristocrat Uh, she lived at Kenwood House which is on Hampstead Heath um, and she's very well known because of a, a really uh, striking portrait of her and her cousin where they're they're presented as kind of aristocratic ladies kind of Dido is ever so slightly kind of exoticized she's kind of wearing this turban but she was brought up within the Mansfield home um, and was was given a, a kind of an allowance and and then inherited money when 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 Lord Mansfield died and so kind of was arguably like a a, um, a mixed race kind of aristocrat. There's also um, an example of of a, of a gentleman called Nathaniel Wells whose whose father left him a significant amount of money and made that money in the Caribbean um, so as part of the transatlantic slave trade but had a had a son um with a black woman he then came to britain often 
uh, when there were the mixed mixed race children in the Caribbean, if they had like wealthy families, they would be sent to England to be educated. And so we have a number of examples of mixed race children being educated in Yorkshire, in Scotland, um, in London, although often not in London because they were like London's too expensive. Like Yorkshire was seen as a, a more like economic like economic option. Um, and I think that to me that was quite surprising to think of these kind of mixed race school children in in these Yorkshire classrooms. But they definitely existed. This guy, Nathaniel Wells, he then um, he then inherits a big sum of money. He builds a kind of um, like a country estate in Wales and I think goes on to be like the sheriff of Monmouth. And so we do have these examples of of mixed race, um, particularly mixed race, if, if we're being really honest, like not necessarily there weren't necessarily people with with really dark skin in these sort of. Uh, like high society positions but then when in the first season of of Bridgerton um, there's the story around the boxer the black boxer and that is very much something that happened in Georgian England Um, there was a boxer Bill Richmond and he was incredibly famous um, a black boxer and he was even then I think an usher at the coronation of George IV and so if people kind of say you know Bridgerton it's all completely a, a fantasy you could, yeah, there could, I think you could definitely argue it's it's perhaps exaggerated, but it's not completely in the realms of fantasy. This is something that if you were in, you know, Georgian London, you would see a number of of black faces. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. In 1958, for example, there are riots in Notting Hill, um, and people start to compare it to what's going on in the United States and. and kind of draw comparisons between you know little rock um and some of the kind of riots that are going on do we see or at any point really in kind of in british history kind of any differences between um like how black history differs between England, Wales, Scotland, and, and Ireland. Was is there any sort of differences that we can we can see? I loved this question, and <laughs> uh, because I think often when we when we talk about black British history, I think what we're really talking about is black English history. Very often, um, or we're you know we we fall into that kind of lazy um, trap, and the different nations I think have really interesting kind of uh, black histories um, in two ways. I think the first way is that the different nations of of the United Kingdom were involved in colonialism in different ways and were involved in the British Empire in different ways. And there's some amazing work I know going on, particularly in Scotland at the moment, looking at Scotland's involvement with particularly kind of plantation slavery. And for people who are familiar with the Caribbean They'll know that there are a lot of Scottish surnames in the Caribbean, um, in Jamaica. Like St- Sterling is like um, is a kind of a particular example, and that Scottish um, involvement in in the Caribbean was was really significant in terms of kind of plantation sort of overseers so those people who were kind of running the plantation they weren't owning it but running the plantation on a, on a day to day basis were very often Scottish. Then if you're thinking about Ireland, there are a number of um, kind of Anglo-Irish military kind of leaders 
I work on on one called Edward Despard, who actually married um, a mixed race Jamaican woman. Um, so he was a white Anglo Irish guy um, involved in in the kind of British Navy. And then, but there's also obviously Ireland has a particular history of of colonialism, both as people being t- uh, forced out into the colonies as kind of indentured servants, but then also Irish people being involved in kind of uh, plantations um, in the Caribbean. So I think there's there's kind of interesting nuances there. But then there's also different um, communities. And I think Wales has a has a particular kind of black history around Cardiff. I mean, Butte Town, particularly uh, sometimes known as like Tiger Bay, uh, with a really strong and very old community of kind of Somali sailors often. So these were kind of Somali people, um, men who worked on ships and then um, as part of the British Empire and were legally allowed to sort of settle in and often did in Cardiff because uh, it's kind of status as like a big port city. And that community has been there since the 19th century. And I think that is that's quite unique to Cardiff. And so I think those kind of histories, I think it's really important to to bring them out to the fore. And I think rather than it just being assumed that there was only black people living in, in England or only black people in the past living in London, which I think is something which we can we can often um, make that mistake. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, another question from Instagram was, um, what do we sort of know about the history of queer black people in Britain? Yeah, that is... That is a really great question. And there is a lot of work, I think, going on at the moment by a sort of new generation of uh, black British historians who are particularly interested in in kind of queer black life, primarily, I think, in the 20th century and and doing some really amazing work with kind of oral histories and, and bringing that bringing that history to light but we have some sort of examples from from the past and a particular favorite of mine is a, is a woman called Pearl Alcock who was um kind of she ran like a bar in Brixton um in the 1970s ran gay bars in Brixton and I've kind of heard the description of like if you would have gone down to it was um like in, in a basement and you would have seen you know black queer men dancing with one another and I think why that story is particularly powerful is this idea that I think sometimes when we think about queer history often we kind of hold up individuals as being these kind of um, exceptional individuals and I think Pearl Alcock's story and, and the story of the kind of bar that she runs showed that there was actually a scene right there was a gay a kind of a it might have been small but a gay black scene of of kind of ordinary Londoners coming together um, to dance and have fun and, and meet people and I think that those kind of stories are the ones that I'm hoping will kind of through this new generation of, of um, historians will get to, to find out a bit more about and they'll kind of then complement stories like that of o- Olive Morris who was a, um, a campaigner in, in Brixton a kind of queer campaigner and then even like Paul Danqua who uh, is often described as maybe the first black British Blue Peter presenter and was, and was uh, in this film A Taste of Honey which is like a particularly kind of um, famous film um, in the 19 I think the 1960s and he he knew Francis um, oh my gosh Francis Bacon the painter and then worked for the World Bank for ages and he was a kind of black Brit in the 1960s I think he only passed in 2015 I think um yeah and worked for the World Bank and kind of had this like really incredible career that seemed to span children's television and (laughs) and international financial institutions so um there are definitely those stories um out there and I hope kind of as we go forward there'll there'll be um more research coming one uh we've had a couple of questions actually um across social media on this one which was 
Um, how closely linked was Britain to the civil rights movement in kind of 1960s America? Um, and did we have the sort of the same push for, for kind of equal rights as there has been, I don't know, in, in other countries? Yeah, this is this, this the first part of this question about what was the kind of involvement maybe of, of Britain with this or um, maybe like black Britons with this with the civil rights um, struggle in America um, stumped me a little bit because I actually didn't know. So I had to go away and, and, and do a little bit of research. And I think that there was at the time a real awareness of the sort of struggle for civil rights that was going on in America in the same way that there was actually, you know, real awareness within the black British uh, community about uh, apartheid South Africa and the struggles that were going on there. There was also interest in what was going on in terms of decolonization in West Africa, for example. So when we're thinking about civil rights um, in the United States, um, we see, for example, in, in the Bristol bus boycott, which some of your listeners might be familiar with, and and the leaders of the of the Bristol bus boycott kind of referenced what was going on in the United States and and kind of said that they took some inspiration from it. And that was a situation that was going on in Bristol, whereby there was a kind of effectively a, a colour bar that, that that black people weren't able to 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 work and have the same employment opportunities in the in the Bristol bus company as as white people. And so they they staged this this bus boycott and and their campaign was successful. And so you kind of see the the sort of similarities perhaps um, or the uh, kind of Black Britons drawing inspiration from from the civil rights struggle in the USA. But something that I also found really fascinating was that you had Black civil rights leaders from America coming over to Britain. Yeah, Malcolm X came, yeah, into um, Smethwick in the West Midlands. And, and some people may be familiar with the, um, with the, with the election in Smethwick in, I think it was 64, um, that was, it's become kind of infamous for a, a, a kind of a racist slogan that was used at the time about if you want a black person for a, a neighbour vote Labour. And Malcolm X came over and he said that he was really kind of disturbed by the treatment that that black people were receiving or experiencing in, in, in Smethwick. And he kind of came over to raise awareness and to kind of stand in solidarity um, with people in Smethwick. So that was something that I found really fascinating. Um, Martin Luther King came to Newcastle in 1967 to receive an honorary doctorate and, and made a speech um, while he was there a brief speech and and talked about how it was important you know that racism wasn't allowed to exist in in Britain in the same way that it shouldn't be allowed to exist obviously in in the United States and sort of mentioned I think actually while he was here that he kind of felt like there was this growing racism that was actually happening in Britain and that it was really important that it was kind of that it was extinguished so those links I found really interesting but I think people talked about this a lot with Black Lives Matter that I think often when I was growing up, I think I often had this sense that, that you know, there was a civil rights struggle in America, but nothing equivalent happened in Britain. And I think that's just very much not the case. It was different, but you see people fighting against what was described as a colour bar at the time. And I think this is something that in British history we're, we're not actually that familiar with and I found quite surprising you know, it wasn't the same as full-blown segregation, but there are so many examples uh, of uh, black and Asian people wanting to go into a bar, into a pub to have a pint um, after work, for example, and being told, no, you can't, we're not going to serve you. Or that we're going to serve you, but you can't sit in the main room. You have to sit in this room to the side that's only, you know, that you can't sit with the white 
with the white patrons. And, you know, that, to me, that, that kind of refusing to serve someone on just on the basis of the colour of their skin, how different is that to what was going on in America when, you know, when, when black students were trying to get served at lunch counters and, and were being, you know, were being refused? And there were also with employment. So we've talked about the bus, uh, Bristol bus boycott, but there was also within within um, British Rail. And I'm, I think it was one of the big London stations. It's awful that I can't remember if it was King's Cross or Euston. And, and one of the um, there was a, a, a black employee and he was told, you know, you can't we're not going to give you this job because because effectively because you're black. And so we see this discrimination in employment. We see it in place, you know, having a drink in a pub. We see it in in housing. It's very like well documented that when lots of people were arriving in Britain in the sort of 50s and 60s, they found it really hard to rent a room. And I think the kind of common refrain was like was from uh, landlords, you know, like, I don't mind that you're black, but the other people in the street or the other people in the house, they won't they won't like it if I rent a room room to you. And so all of that discrimination was fought against repeatedly by by black people. Um, they they campaigned. Um, they they kind of took the fight to to Parliament. Um, and there were also uh, MPs, particularly Labour MPs, left wing MPs who who felt like th- there should be law changes um, to protect people um, from kind of racist discrimination. The thing that's, that I find then really interesting was that the uh, like the year the year uh, before they passed the first sort of race relations act, which outlawed um, discrimination on the basis of the colour of someone's skin in a public place. That was when they started tightening the ability of people to come from different places in the Commonwealth to Britain. So you kind of clamped down on people's freedom of movement from from the Commonwealth. Um, And a year later, they kind of introduced this first Race Relations Act. So I think we kind of see it's not a very straightforward narrative of, of necessarily kind of progress, that there have been very much kind of like ups and downs, but there was very much a kind of struggle for equality um, that existed in this country as well as in places like the United States or South Africa. Yeah, and sort of staying staying on that note, um, sort of going back at sort of earlier in the twentieth century, you know, there are mm. they were sort of, there were race riots, weren't they? Kind of in the in the kind of early twentieth century. Um, what, what can you sort of tell us about those and kind of where where did they happen and why were they happening? Yeah, so historians so. In 1919, so just after the end of the of the First World War, and historians have often kind of explained it as there were white soldiers kind of being demobilised, coming back to Britain. And things were really hard in terms of the economy. Um, there was high levels of unemployment and, and people were trying to get jobs. And I think it's something that we have seen that, you know, that, recurs throughout history people want someone to blame often when when times are hard and a lot of that blame fell to to black and and, and asian communities um that were living in places like liverpool like cardiff and there were what have been kind of termed as race riots and one particular guy he was a black um guy called charles wooten he was 
effectively lynched. He was chased um, and 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 um, and killed. And the rioting that happened in Liverpool, I think estimates are maybe like ten kind of thousand people were involved. So it was big scale, and that there were about seven hundred families who were kind of evacuated from their homes, um, black and kind of Asian families, for their own safety because there was this kind of fear that they were that they were you know, under threat of, of, of violence. Um, I think it's also important to mention, actually, that it was also kind of Chinese and Arab families. It was maybe particularly at sort of the black community, but not exclusively. Um, there were also kind of riots and disturbances that happened in other other parts of, of the country where there was a kind of a black, a black presence. And so there, the government started to think about kind of effectively repatriating people they offered black people money to to return um to leave britain and and kind of gave them like an an allowance for a kind of a resettlement allowance effectively and we kind of see that from from the government this government's response is is that they don't want to be the government often in britain doesn't want to be seen as racist but is doing things which you know is racist and we kind of see that throughout uh the the 20th century that the government tries really hard to kind of protect its reputation as britain not being a racist country like we're not like the united states we're not like south africa um you know we we abolished slavery um but there are you know a number of things that occur like in 1958, for example, there are riots in Notting Hill, um, and people start to compare it to what's going on in the United States and, and kind of draw comparisons between, you know, Little Rock um, and some of the kind of riots that are going on. And, and the government is, is hates this and is really trying to, like, make sure that this doesn't become part of Britain's kind of international reputation, doesn't tarnish kind of Britain's image abroad. And so Britain, I think, has a much more complex sort of history around race and, and racism than um than I think it's often um often seen and it's kind of very much tied up with empire with this desire to not be seen um as racist and there's quite a lot to unpick moving on a little bit in time you mentioned Windrush um and, and that's kind of been seen as that's that that's the big moment kind of in a big moment in, in 20th century British history um was it was it do you think it really was a really big moment um you know do you think we focus too much on Windrush I think there were a number of other ships that arrived in the sort of year, um, like the sort of 18 months prior to the Windrush um, arriving. And and so it, it wasn't the first ship, which I think is often how people kind of um, um, perceive it. I actually did a, I used to be a, a school teacher and I actually did a project with, with some of my year nine students about why has the Windrush become such a iconic thing in, in British history? And we thought maybe some of it was down to the name. It's got a nice sounding name. And I think often, <laughs> often in, yeah. Um, and, and it's a memorable name. And I think, I think as humans, we quite like to feel like there's a beginning to something, you know? And I think you know, it, it is hard to ignore that there was a big wave of post-war migration. And I think it would be wrong, you know, it, it's not historically accurate to to kind of deny that. Um, people coming from the Caribbean, but also from um, India, what's now Bangladesh, Pakistan. And, and that that was, that did change communities and it did change the face of Britain. There obviously had been, um, you know, a number of people on the Windrush had lived in Britain uh, during the war 
and then had returned to you know to the Caribbean, particularly Jamaica, and then had decided to come back to kind of to their lives in Britain, effectively. So, um, you know, there as we know, there was a much longer kind of history of of, of a black presence in Britain prior to 1948, which is when the Windrush arrived. But I understand why people kind of hold on to that to that moment um, and and why people sort of celebrate it. Um, it's just I think it's really important. And I think what's been what I've been finding really kind of um, heartening about the the last few years is that there's so much more appetite for black history that's not just around the wind rush and isn't just telling that story um, of how people came after sort of 1948 that we're really starting to to branch out in terms of the black history that we're we're telling to our you know to children and David Olashoga's done a great job in that and sort of the black and British children um, black and British children's edition um, and I kind of hope that it does spur on the kind of next generation to, to start thinking about black British histories that have kind of been a little bit under research. So we were talking about Ireland earlier and, and the kind of, you know, Northern Irish black British history is something that I don't think we know a huge amount about yet. Queer black British history. I think there's so much work to be done around the, the sort of West African presence in Britain, which I think that that when we're thinking about Windrush, it's very much a Caribbean migration story. But actually, when we're thinking, I think the census is, is data is going to come out soon. And I think it's it's very much the case now that when we're thinking about Black Britain today, most people can trace more people can trace their heritage back to sort of West Africa than they can to the Caribbean, and that it's sort of Black African is a much bigger proportion of the Black British population um, than it than I think it has been um, in the past, and I think there is a lot of really interesting history that can be written about sort of early Nigerian history and its connection to Britain, particularly to Liverpool. And I think that, you know, Lagos was called like the Liverpool of West Africa. And I I think there's so much more that we can uncover that kind of moves away from the more traditional black British history story that we've that we've kind of had to tell because you've got to start somewhere. Right. But I think it's, it's kind of time to hear some new stories. That was Hannah Cusworth. Hannah's a historian specialising in black British histories And she's currently studying for a PhD with English heritage, looking at mahogany, race and the 18th century Atlantic world. Hannah's also historical consultant for BBC History Revealed's Essential Guide to Black British History. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.